linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, at least I'm getting this podcast out uh, one day earlier than I did last week. And at this rate, I should be back up to my early-in-the-week release schedule before much longer. It's, uh, it's really hard to believe that half of January is already gone this year. I guess that old saying uh, is right, that uh, time really flies when you're having a good time. I guess I must be having a ball. But uh, before I get too carried away with myself here, uh, first I want to thank two people who have made recent donations to the salon. And they are Mona F., Thank you, Mona. And Victoria T., who has also made donations in the past. Thank you both for uh, helping to keep these podcasts going. I deeply appreciate your support. Uh, well, as I was trying to decide what talk to play today, it dawned on me that uh, it was way back in November of 2006 that uh, Ralph Abraham loaned me his big box of cassette tapes of the trialogues he held with Terence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake. The plan at the time was to get them all digitized and online in podcast format as soon as possible. Well, uh, Bruce Damer and I got the digitizing done in just a few days and nights, <laughs> a few days and nights of work. But uh, I guess I've fallen down on my end of the bargain to get them all in podcast format. Even though uh, we've already listened to 29 of them here in the Psychedelic Salon, there are uh, still about 15 left to go. So I've decided to play some more of the uh, Trilogue series we were listening to a couple of podcasts back. Like the previous two Trilogue podcasts, this one was uh, recorded with only the recording engineer present, whose uh, name I believe was Paul. And the date of this recording is September of 1991, and it may have been uh, made partially for them to use while writing their 1992 book, Trilogues at the Edge of the West. Now this particular trilogue may be out there on the net somewhere, but uh, it's the first time I've heard it myself, and I found it to, uh, to be one of the most intimate and fascinating of them all so far. The topic Terrence and his friends discuss in, uh, in this session is cannabis, and my guess is that you're going to find this trilogue both interesting and fun. So uh, let's join them now. Well, our subject this afternoon is uh, cannabis, uh, a subject which is of interest to large numbers of people, though it's rarely discussed and, in fact, seems to have attained the status of somewhat of a taboo in polite society. My interest in it is uh, intense and lifelong, I must say. Uh, I remember... Uh, when I first encountered it, within a few minutes of my first exposure to it, I realized that I was going to be able to self-medicate myself to normalcy. Uh, I was, as an adolescent, what's called a nervous child uh, and uh, sort of... Uh, had a personal style that was very hard-driving and, I'm told, fairly abrasive. And uh, 
it really came with the force of a revelation that the mere smoking of a small amount of vegetable material could completely invert the structures of my personality and uh, socialize me, as it were, into a reasonably functioning member of the community in which I found myself. I first encountered cannabis in Berkeley in the uh, Easter vacation of 1965. And it took a, a, a couple or three exposures to it before I really sorted out what it was doing for me. And uh, I brought to it all the uh, programming that my middle-class straight parents had given me concerning the subject, that this was uh, the weed of death, that the road to hell was paved uh, with this particular substance. But I also had been exposed to some of the literature of the Beat Generation, the writings of Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, uh, and uh, some of those people. And uh, within just a few months, I had integrated it into my lifestyle uh, as uh, really the central practice of my life, and it has remained so up until just two or three months ago when, under the pressure of my apparently dissolving marriage, I uh, stopped smoking in order to see, really, what sort of effect it would have. I was in the sort of absurd position of being in uh, psychotherapy with a woman who I respected very much and who seemed to be a very skilled psychotherapist, except that she had no sophistication whatsoever about cannabis. And the therapeutic process kept looping back to the issue of my cannabis ingestion. And she would ask me, well, now, how many times a day do you do this? I would say, uh, 10 to 14. And she would say, and how many years have you been doing this? Well, 25, 26, 27. And finally, I saw that it was impeding the therapeutic process, not in, in its physical effects, but in its effects on her attitude toward me. So I determined simply to stop in order to remove this issue from uh, the menu of issues that we were dealing with in this therapeutic process. And I'm happy to report that uh, though I was at that time the heaviest and most continuous cannabis user I have ever known or heard of, uh, it was no big deal. I simply stopped smoking it and uh, took up reading in the evenings and uh, it seemed to have no uh, impact on my psychological organization at all except that, I must say, um, my dream life 
became uh, considerably more interesting in the wake of that decision. And over the years in my traveling, when there have been times when for just a few days my access to cannabis was interrupted, I noticed this same phenomenon that in the absence of cannabis, the dream life seems to become much richer. This causes me to sort of uh, form a, a theory just for my own edification that cannabis must in some sense um, uh, thin the boundary between the conscious and unconscious mind and I sort of imagine uh, the, the unconscious as a system under hydraulic pressure and if you smoke cannabis the energy which would normally be channeled into dreams is instead manifest in the reveries uh, of the cannabis intoxication. The reason that I've smoked it so assiduously over the years is very simply that it seems to dissolve uh, a local and personalistic perspective. If I don't smoke cannabis, I worry about balancing my checkbook, uh, the state of my uh, immediate short-term uh, career concerns. In other words, all the anxieties of the petty bourgeois pour in to claim my attention. If, on the other hand, I avail myself of cannabis, I'm able to rove and scan through a vast intellectual world that is composed of uh, all the books I've ever read, all the people I've ever known, all the places I've ever been, in no particular order. I mean, what I really value about cannabis is the way in which it allows one to be taken by surprise by unexpected ideas. In the absence of cannabis, my creativity is a kind of brick-by-brick brick linear extrapolation of certain concerns based on what I've just read or heard in conversation. If, on the other hand, I smoke cannabis, I can go in one moment from thinking about Goethe's color theory to in the next moment puzzling over a particular instance in Mayan historiography or, uh, well, the, the examples are endless. And I think um, that my experience is generalizable specifically by looking at, for instance, the architectural and art historical motifs of uh, areas of the world where cannabis has been institutionalized for thousands of years, what we call oriental extravagance is in fact the patina of design motifs and literary conventions that have been laid over ordinary experience in places like Bengal, uh, the Punjab, and across the, the Middle East. Uh, Islam 
is a civilization, to my mind, largely, though perhaps unconsciously, under the influence of uh, the visions and the attitudes imparted by hashish. Uh, when I attempt to analyze, uh, in, a, in the broadest sense, what the influence that cannabis has on myself and on large groups of people who use it, it is uh, that it seems to exert uh, a kind of feminizing influence. It's a boundary-dissolving drug, but a very gentle boundary-dissolving drug. It doesn't dissolve boundaries in the spectacular way that the mega-hallucinogens do. Of all the drugs that have been used by mankind over the centuries, I would venture to argue that cannabis is the most benign. Certainly, more money has been spent trying to uh, find something wrong with cannabis than has ever been spent on any other drug and the findings are uh, woeful uh, 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 well there's just no support for the idea that cannabis is anything other than as benign as a drug can be when you consider that it has to be smoked so there is the issue of the generation of tars now it is true that in India charas which is what is smoked uh, as the equivalent of hashish, is actually a much more complex material. Charas can, often contains opium, nearly always contains uh, datura, uh, parts of the datura plant which contain tropane alkaloids, and it usually is held together by resin binders from various varieties of pine trees. Uh, nevertheless, apparently, uh, the smoking of charas in India is also an extremely non-destructive habit. Uh, alcohol, on the other hand, is demonstrably one of the most destructive of all social habits. I mean, I think what a bright world it would be if every alcoholic were a pothead. What a bright world it would be if uh, every user and abuser of speed and caffeine were a pothead. It seems to be a, uh, a plant which has evolved in a very intimate association with human beings from a very early time, and hence whatever deleterious effects it has, we have managed to accommodate ourselves to them very well. Uh, one of the most interesting things about cannabis as a cultural phenomenon, I think, is, um, first of all, notice how uh, cannabis is the resin product of the hemp plant. The hemp plant is, since the Neolithic forward, the um, uh, preferred source of fiber and cordage. And I think it's interesting to note how uh, the language of story 
and the lang and the technical language of weaving are very very similar in other words we untangle a a narrative we weave a story lies are made of whole cloth all of these words which describe uh, the use of fibrous materials are also the words that we use for uh, storytelling and narrative and I think it's because probably these two concerns weaving and uh, storytelling and linguistic facility go back and find themselves in congruence in the hemp plant. The other thing that's interesting is that um, the in the cultivation of hemp for resin purposes, for drug production purposes, all the emphasis falls upon the female plant. The male plant does not produce a usable drug material. And in fact, female plants, if in the presence of male plants, uh, become contaminated with male pollen and then produce an inferior drug product. So hemp literally demands the honoring of the female. Now, I'm not suggesting that this was consciously in the minds of primitive people because the female hemp plant does not particularly appear female in any way that can be associated to human femaleness. But it is nevertheless true that hemp plants come in two very distinct forms and we now know that one of these forms is the expression of the male plant, the other is the expression of the female plant. So waves of Gylanic resurgence uh, that have been coming and going since the Neolithic uh, seem to me in many cases to carry along as one of the appurtenances of the Gylanic sensibility uh, devotion to this particular drug and this particular plant uh, above all others. Anybody want to jump in here? Well, <clears throat> only a small question mm-hmm. to start with. Um, since the leaves of the male plant do have a pharmacological effect, um, I just wondered if you had anything to say on your experience of comparing the effects of the two. Well, only in that if it has a pharmacological effect, its orders of magnitude more weakened than the female. Uh, one thing I might say, we in the 20th century tend to smoke our cannabis. I mean, aside for the occasional holiday cannabis cookie, uh, cannabis for us is something that is smoked. On the other hand, for the 19th century and for all of European civilization, uh, cannabis was something uh, that was eaten in the form of various sugared confections that were prepared and this method of ingestion changes cannabis into an extremely powerful psychedelic experience I mean if you read the accounts of people like uh, 
Theodore Gautier or Baudelaire or Fitzhugh Ludlow, written in the mid-19th century, they are describing experiences that obviously were for them as powerful as a 500 microgram dose of LSD proved uh, in our own lifetimes. Uh, and we forget this. We tend to think of it as a social uh, as a social drug and a kind of a minor drug uh, on a par with smoking a cigarette or having a cognac or something like that. But in fact, for the serious eater of hashish, there it is the portal into a true artificial paradise uh, whose length and breadth is equal to that of any of the artificial paradises that we've discovered in modern psychedelic pharmacology. To my mind, the whole of Orient, of, uh, by Oriental I mean Indian and Middle Eastern civilization, is steeped in the ambiance of hashish. I mean, the Mosque of Omar, for example, is a beautiful example of the aesthetic of hashish at work, or Jama Masjid in Delhi, or the um, interiors of the mosques of Isfahan. This ideal of sensual beauty, of the uh, richness of abstract design and vaulting spaces and uh, vast concourses of uh, polished marble and travertine. These seem to be uh, the motifs of hashish uh, in the same way that the Gothic vision of black ocean waters sucking at haunted islands is a part of the repertoire of the opium vision that so entranced uh, the romantic poets. Hashish cannabis has an ambiance of its own. It has a morphogenetic field. And if you enter into that morphogenetic field, you enter into a, a an androgynous, softened, abstract, colorful, uh, and extraordinarily beautiful world. And in our own time, it seems to me the uh, intense hatred and of hashish and the efforts to eradicate it that reach hysterical proportions in our own country have nothing to do with the pharmacological impact of the drug or any deleterious effect that it might be perceived to have, but rather it is sensed as the carrier of a different set of cultural values, which I would broadly describe as uh, Gaian or Gailanic or feminizing or androgynous, and that this is what really brings the opprobrium of the dominator society upon it. It is profoundly disloyal to the values of uh, modern industrialism, where, for instance, a drug like caffeine, exemplified in coffee and tea, has been made very welcome in those same societies. I mean, no other drug other than caffeine has ever been written into the industrial contracts of workers as an inalienable right. 
and yet in the coffee break we encounter uh, contractually uh, uh, defined rights to drug use that seem to work in favor of both manager and worker. Cannabis is very different. It promotes a dreaminess. It promotes an abiding in the imagination that is uh, the, the stuff of romantic poetry rather than the stuff of the modern assembly line. And I've used it that way as a tool for creativity. I mean, it's incredible how just a few puffs of cannabis can carry you over uh, uh, a creative problem or a block in seeing a particular problem so that suddenly the perspective shifts and what was previously occluded becomes patently obvious. So I think that there's a great argument for um, above and beyond the well-known and familiar arguments for legalizing this drug, that it would provide revenue for governments, that it would decriminalize a class of people who, if it weren't for their devotion to cannabis products, would be seen to be among the most law-abiding of all classes within society. These arguments are familiar and have been made uh, very eloquently by other people. But behind that, there's a deeper issue, which is the, the zeitgeist, if you will, of cannabis, which carries a certain uh, implied danger to establishment values, which puts such a premium on clear-eyed hard work and Presbyterian rectitude. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> well, I think it's interesting that in countries like Egypt and India, uh, where cannabis is being used for millennia and accepted as part of society, that now, both under the influence of the United States foreign policy and of industrialism, there's now attempts to suppress or stamp it out. Countries like Malaya, where it's been accepted as part of Kampong life for many, many generations, now there are strict laws, draconian attempts to uh, stop people smoking it. And a death penalty. Even death penalties. So it's true that there's a shift in valuation taking place, imposed by the West, going together with industrialism, which is happening, and it's clear that this is something to do with this change in consciousness. Um, it's also clear that the, um, in the 19th century there was a very different attitude on behalf of Western powers and cannabis was not illegal in Western countries and indeed in India. Um, the British government in India operated a cannabis monopoly. Um, the cannabis trade was the monopoly of the government and this continued in parts of um, India like United Uttar Pradesh and in Pakistan until quite recently, maybe it still goes on. But when I was last in Lahore, um, in the bazaar there, there's a, a, a little shop, which says over the door, government opium shop, and this shop deals in cannabis and um, opium, and is uh, still, or was still, part of the government monopoly. So different attitudes have prevailed at different times, but it's clear that the modern industrial consciousness is alien to cannabis, and I suppose it's clear that 
the growth of what you'd call Gaian consciousness from the 1960s onwards um, is closely linked to it. Most people I know um, who's smoke it has started in the 1960s or subsequently. I know very few who were familiar with its use before then. There must always have been some, but it was presumably uh, the explosion of consciousness in the 1960s was closely associated with the explosion of cannabis and other psychedelic substances. Um, well, given all these facts, and given the strong case you make for its uh, benevolent effects, what I'm interested in is why Ralph, who was also present on the scene in the 1960s, is no uh, enemy of the effect of psychedelics, has um, spent so many years as a total abstainer. Hmm. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you because I have an extremely positive attitude toward cannabis. I personally made the acquaintance uh, in 1966, so a year after Terence, around my 30th birthday, and I discovered immediately on first smoking, more or less, some of these beneficial effects, even though I had no culture around me, um, uh, mythological interpretation and, and uh, tradition of cannabis appreciation. Nevertheless, I saw uh, at once these functions of the deconstruction of character armor and uh, rigid mental structures opening up for a free roving enormous uh, terrains of intellectual territory, synthetic uh, effect of uh, resonance between previously isolated rooms in the mental mansion. And uh, in uh, 1968, there came into my possession by some miracle a large amount of synthetic THC in caps, which I circulated among friends, uh, many of whom were mathematicians. This uh, oral ingestion does produce, uh, I guess, what a smoker of cannabis would call an overdose, basically. <laughs> and uh, a, a very, well, benign psychedelic experience. Then, after moving to Santa Cruz in 1968, where the hip subculture was thriving, all events were accompanied by smoking joints. And uh, my main impression of it is what uh, Terence Described on the relationship of hemp and uh, stories. Um, or I've learned this word uh, diaphanous from you, Paris, thinking of triaphanous, the triaphanous web that we weave in our meetings, this um, kind of strong coupling, enhanced resonance was in my experience characteristic of the cannabis experience. So we started with the chant Om Namo Shivaya, and in India, the smoking of charas is a, uh, most probably it's a form of puja for Shiva. Daniel Ru has emphasized the history of the Shaivite religion as 
preceding the arrival of the Indo-Europeans, the Aryans, into India, associated with the, the Dravidians, now laid in the south of India. And he identifies also this uh, Shivite religion, prehistoric religion, with Orphism in Greece. Shiva, Orpheus, this is the same. So the association of cannabis and agarony, I think, is a uh, very reasonable uh, conjecture on prehistory that uh, cannabis was an important crop in Minoan Crete, was an important ingredient in the Dionysian revels before alcohol took over. It was the uh, maybe the secret and most important in ingredient in the maintenance of the Gyanic partnership societies of the prehistoric past. Therefore, the fact that its uh, arrival into mass use, breaking into mass use through college campuses in the 1960s, uh, did give birth to the hips of subculture, gave rebirth to the uh, to the Gyllenic, uh resurgence wave yet another Gyllenic resurgence wave in the 60s. So this is a pretty powerful benefit for the uh, argument in favor of the free availability of cannabis in the society. It has uh, beneficial effects, which are not only a little bit beneficial as, for example, creativity, enhanced health, or something like that. It aids the diaphanous web, the communication, the empathy, the appreciation for another view, the possibility of resonance between one's ideas and other ideas, opening up um, creativity on the scale of cultural evolution in personal relationship, the way in which uh, sexual experience is enhanced, for example, the aphrodisiac effect of cannabis in the right dose is just one example of its overall a synthetic role. It is uh, medicine for cultural evolution, and that—that's th my experience. But if you want to know why I stopped, I think uh, well during the time that I did make friends with cannabis, I was al also doing LSD a lot and then mushrooms a lot and other psychedelics and so on. So it was sort of a package deal. I found it uh, convenient finally to experience with the other side uh, an alternate behavior in which there would be a focusing on a tiny point of consciousness to a kind of focus <clears throat> and concentration maintained over a long period of time which was which brought its own benefit, another kind of benefit. So after synthesizing and um, deconstructing armor and obtaining new views over vaster territories and so on, if <coughs> you want to produce a product like proving a mathematical theorem, which sometimes takes seven years of concentration on a single point in consciousness, this um, kind of activity for, for me that seemed to be enhanced by abstinence from everything, from newspapers, from other people's stories, from dinner party talk and 
and and so on, and from large parts of my own consciousness, just focusing on a point. I found experimenting with every different variation of behavior that in order to accomplish my goals, say around 1980, when I quit all uh, psychedelics for a while, uh, trying all these experiments and bringing the parameters, I found that the least of everything indulging in a process in India they call sankratizing, uh, giving up everything and then bragging about that. This brought about more and more increase of in the performance for myself that of speaking at that time. And this is like an elite athlete searching for ultimate performance, or trying to break some kind of world record for focusing on a point. It's even uh, what I was doing was difficult and <coughs> required rigid discipline. I invoked these ideas of yogic discipline that I had learned in, in India, and they're responsible for a certain kind of ultimate performance, as uh, cannabis and other psychedelics enhance a completely different kind of ultimate performance. And I suppose this is, I guess you could say, another binary of... Uh, focusing and defocusing mental states. In my current state, now more than 10 years old, I, I realize is approaching the breaking point, and soon it may be possible, may be necessary for me to relax in a, on a fairly massive scale in order to um, regain novelty in my approach. Hmm. How does it work for you, Rupert, in the process of relating to the problem of creativity? Well, I think there are two uh, two things I'd say. One is that um, it seems to create a much greater sense of ability to concentrate. So contrary to your experience that concentration is easier without it, I found that um, one of the effects is a greatly enhanced ability to concentrate, whether it's listening to music, to concentrate on the music and not be distracted by other things, or whether it's um, reading something and thinking about the ideas and following a chain of thought to try concentrate on that, or a line of exploration and conversation. Um, or <coughs> um, in writing, to concentrate on the flow of thought and onto the expression of the words and the, the, the way in which the language can express the idea. The, the tremendous concentration that's required in writing something, at least which I find is necessary for writing books, um, or, or thinking out the structure of a chapter or of a, um, an argument. I find it's a great aid to concentration, partly because, as Terence says, it makes it possible to enter a state where these become things of importance and it, it the everyday concerns about checkbooks, banks you know, mailing a letter this kind of thing becomes secondary importance um, so it may be partly by removing the niggling preoccupations of mundane existence that it becomes easier to concentrate the second effect I found, which uh, I have a great deal to thank the uh, cannabis plant for, is that in relation to 
places, the spirit of places, the spirit of trees, the spirits of plants, um, and the spirits of sacred places, two temples, cathedrals, and so on, that um, it gives an enormous enhancement of the sense of connection and relationship, which is otherwise normally filtered out by this chattering internal dialogue of the banal kind, which goes on much of the time. So that, uh, I suppose, would fit with what Terence says about the dissolution of boundaries. Um, it is a, a much greater sense of connectedness. Um, but there are two, two other things that come in, in train with this. One, as Terence noted, a suppression of dreams. Whenever I, I'm not a, a constant smoker, and as a kind that you, you were, Terence, um, more sort of occasional. Um, but in periods when I don't smoke at all, then there's, I notice much greater intensity of dreams. I remember more dreams. They seem much more vivid. Periods when I'm smoking, um, I don't remember dreams at all, usually. So there is this curious suppression of dreams, and I don't really know what to make of that. Um, there's also um, an effect which I think is a negative effect of cannabis, and which is one of the reasons why governments and industrial civilizations try to suppress it, which is that um, because it produces a kind of physical relaxation which allows the mind to expand and journey and uh, one's psyche to connect and so on. Uh, this, I think, the other side of that coin is that there's a kind of toning down and, uh, and tuning down the whole springs of action of the body. So one's perfectly content to sit around doing not very much. Um, it doesn't produce a tremendous urge to go and empty the dustbin or um, you know, do chores around the house and, and that kind of thing. And indeed it's this um, kind of activity which is easily identified by external observers as physical laziness, which is the reason for its bad reputation in countries where it's habitually used. And in Kashmir, for example, I was staying in Srinagar at one stage and I had an agricultural project in Srinagar and I was staying with a friend who was studying Kashmiri Shaivism. So I had my job and then I was staying with this fellow and we were talking about this and he said, well, have you ever been to one of these shrines where, Sufi shrines, Durgas, where cannabis smoking is tolerated as part of the standard pattern of society, um, but where you see why there is a negative um, image of this hashish smoking in such societies, which you also get in Egypt and so on. I mean, some of the middle class image of cannabis smoking in India and in Malaya and elsewhere is a bit like the middle class image of winos and, and methylated spirit drinkers and so on in, in the West. We went to the shrine, which was the shrine of a Sufi saint, and attached to it was a smoking room, and this room was full of people smoking hashish, sitting around the walls, and there was a place there where you could buy it. So we sat down and had a puff, and I, it was a dreadful revelation to me when the man sitting next to me spoke to me in Urdu, and um, he'd got bleary eyes, he'd got several days' growth of stubble, he was in ragged, smelly clothes. He pulled out a picture of himself, a kind of identity card thing, himself smart in a uniform said I used to be a bus driver until I started smoking now look at me that's what it's done to me he said as he took another puff 
I've lost my family, I've lost everything. And so there was a kind of uh, the negative, the shadow side of it, which I saw then more clearly than ever before or since, um, which certainly fitted with what rather prim middle-class people in Malaya and India and in other Oriental countries have told me about its habitual usages, which made it clear how it could accumulate this negative image, how it could um, cause alarm in people who don't want the habit to spread in modern, efficient industrial societies. Um, and this is certainly associated in my own experience with... Um, fact that the mental expansion is bought at the price of a, um, a certain physical lethargy. So I wonder if that's been your experience. I, actually, it hasn't. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the question. It has to be said that cannabis is uh, chemically complicated. It's not simply one cannabinoid. There are a number of these cannabinoids, and various strains are have various ratios and proportions of these things. But, for instance, I find when I'm writing books that I can only write for about three hours, and then either the day is finished for work, or I smoke hashish, and 20 minutes later I'm ready to go two hours more at it. And I can do that twice in a day. If I judiciously control my intake of cannabis, it like gives me a second wind and a third wind to go forward with creative activity. Now, if you just sit down and smoke into stupor, you're not going to be able to do this. But if you just stop this now tiresome and boring activity and have a couple of puffs, and then you sit and you have a few interesting thoughts and you feel completely revitalized and able to go back to it. And I've noticed this not only with creative work, but with physical work. For instance, if I'm stacking wood, I'll stack half a cord of wood and then I'll either think, well, I'll finish stacking it tomorrow and then I'll go in and smoke some cannabis and a half hour later I'll say, well, if I wait till tomorrow, I'll just go and finish it right now. I think you all know Paul Bowles' book uh, or the statement that uh, a puff of Keith makes a man strong as 20 camels in the courtyard. There's something to this. It's, it's not simple. It can turn you into a stupor, sort of lazy, loutish person. On the other hand, it can allow you to do very hard work for very long periods of time. So you sort of have to manage it. And I think a lot of people don't learn to manage it. One of the things that's always put against uh, marijuana is that it destroys short-term, or, or it destroys your memory. Well, I dare say I have a prodigious memory, and I'm the heaviest smoker I've ever known, and my memory for dates, names of painters, writers, literary and scientific minutiae, odd vocabularies in specialized areas, is very great, and I, I don't credit cannabis with that, 
but I certainly can't believe that it has damaged my ability to do this. Now, it is true that sometimes in a conversation you will lose your thread, but on the other hand, uh, it gives you an equal power to brilliantly fake the situation and to pick up the thread and re-stitch together um, the narrative. The other point I might make that we haven't mentioned yet, or two points actually, is that I think it gives an, in, uh, an extraordinary verbal facility. And this is actually what won me to it in the first place. Uh, my reputation as a public speaker is based on my supposedly dazzling oratorical abilities. But I come out of a, a peer group, a carass in Berkeley, where everyone was able to do what I do. Everyone seemed to be able to hold forth for hours on the most arcane subjects. And in fact, when I got into cannabis, the style of doing it that I enjoyed most was uh, I ran a kind of cannabis salon, as it were. And people came, and they smoked, and they talked, and talked, and talked. And this is all we did, was talk. And I no recordings exist of that era, but I believe that the conversation was brilliant, wide-ranging, prescient, uh, to the point, and extraordinarily uh, creative and capable of astonishing. And I give uh, complete credit to cannabis for that. I, I remember the second time that I smoked cannabis, um, I was a great fan of Herman Melville at that time. And uh, my friend and I smoked some cannabis and then called on some young women at a dormitory that we were courting at that time. And we went into the visitor's room of the dormitory, and I was able to hold forth for an hour in a pseudo-Melvillian style. I created on the spot, without hesitation, a, a, a short story in the style of Herman Melville. Uh, that was dazzling, apparently, to my hearers. Well, this, this is uh, verbal facility of an extraordinary sort. The other area where I think it has an important role to play that we haven't talked about is in um, sexual performance and sexual stamina. Uh, when I first became sexually active, and I think this is a problem of many young men simply because they have so much juice going, is uh, uh, premature ejaculation. I, all my sexual encounters were haunted by that possibility simply because I was just so hyped up over the idea of having intercourse with someone. Well, I discovered that smoking hashish gave me an incredible ability to control my ejaculation and also uh, my sexual stamina. So these were invaluable social skills. It gave me uh, verbal facility, 
sexual stamina, control over my ejaculation, uh, beautiful visions, a prodigious memory. Uh, <laughs> it did everything but suppress appetite, which it certainly did not do. Uh, the munchies, uh, regardless of what pharmacologists tell us, about how this is an illusion, the munchies seem to be a very real part of cannabis use, meaning that 40 minutes or an hour after smoking cannabis, one does find oneself rummaging through the cupboard looking for uh, chocolate chip cookies. But uh, this, this is hardly grounds for hanging, which is the current uh, legal response in Malaysia. My impression, Terence, is that your experience is not typical typical, and uh, most of the things you described, I would say, are typical of my experience, personally. And but, mine. But uh, in uh, Santa Cruz, I remember after the 60s came and went, there was, I mean, this is a community that was very involved in the marijuana trade in uh, the 70s, let's say. There were a certain number of people who were habitual users. I, I would say habitual smokers as you were and it seemed as if they couldn't get their life together unlike you they were you know they were functional they could stack the wood but they never got on to doing what they wanted to do and I did begin to associate a certain subtle disorganization with their habitual smoking um, this is a different a, a slightly more mild form of this negative effect of, of that Rupert described in India, where where people are um, truly ad addicted and in a subhuman state, that I think requires taking a really uh, deep inhalations of cannabis with with a, with a chillum. But um, there are let's say for the sake of discussion that there is a negative side beyond what you have experienced in case of uh, heavy use. And even so, it's, I think, very modest compared to the negative side of heavy use of alcohol and is very insignificant in comparison with the very positive effects of cannabis use in a society, which in the case of alcohol, I don't know of any. They might be some people can tell amazing alcohol stories where they really have been able to work wonderful while intoxicated, but basically I think it's agreed that uh, while relaxing and in small doses and good for your health, it basically has a negative influence. It brings up the question that I know you've uh, both thought about this. Why is it, how is it that uh, cannabis, in spite of these beneficial effects, its benignness and someone is so strongly uh, regulated and forbidden all over the planet now. One idea I know from the previous, uh, that since cannabis is the Orphic drug, it's associated with the goddess, and then, and then in the patriarchal takeover, of course, it was one of the things that was knocked from the pedestal along with chaos and the goddess. But even now, in this modern society where we have no recourse to these old myths and people are not really afraid of the goddess re-emerging, there's this incredibly expensive drug war going on. 
uh, people are not speaking of cannabis now, I think, because the atmosphere for it is most, much more hostile today than even 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I used to speak about my experience with psychedelics in class. Now, I wouldn't. It's better not to. Not because the police are going to come and carry me away, but the immediate reaction of these people I'm trying to communicate with is going to be very, very negative. More negative than if I was alcoholic and then put in jail for driving while intoxicated. <coughs> so the um, some kind of paranoia about whatever cannabis represents to people, the significance and the mythological, this paranoia is on the increase in this decade, and I wonder why why you think that is. Mm. Well, first may I say that I think this paranoia is somewhat polarized and that there is a rising paranoia in the United States uh, which has partly been exported to countries like Malaysia. Um, the paranoia about cannabis in, in Europe is definitely on the decline. Cannabis has been effectively decriminalized in Holland, in Switzerland, in Italy. Um, even in Britain, even in the Thatcher regime, um, the, uh, there was an article recently in the newspapers um, saying that something like 90% of the people the police catch with small amounts of cannabis are now let off with a caution, not even fined. In Italy, the possession of small quantities of cannabis is uh, not a criminal offence, and even somewhat slightly larger ones is treated on a par with parking offences. You know, you get a ticket or something, minor fines. Um, and the movement, even in Britain, which is probably the most closest to America in its history, in, in general attitudes in Europe, um, there's been a progressive attitude on the part of the police and even increasing numbers of legislators and judges towards decriminalizing the use of cannabis. De facto, in small quantities, this has actually happened. So rather than zero tolerance being the rule, there's in fact been an increasing tolerance in most European societies to the use of cannabis over the last decade. Um, and full-scale legalization may not yet have come, but um, this has happened de facto in various parts of Europe. In there are streets of Zurich, for example, where you can sit in the street at cafes and smoke openly. There are certain streets where it's tolerated, unwritten agreements. There are parts of Amsterdam where it's sold over the counter in cafes, even advertised different brands of it. There are cards up with prices on public display. Um, so um, there has been a countervailing move in Europe. And so it's not as if this hysteria is gripped everywhere equally. Then we'll be seeing the um, increase of novelty and uh, cultural evolution in Europe outstripping developments in the United States, according to our Well, to some, it may in fact be happening. I mean, I certainly feel much more at the center of novelty when I'm in Germany, where, by the way, people smoke cannabis in restaurants and uh, uh, quite openly. The United States seems to be on a kind of fundamentalist religious bender that carry it and its attitude toward women's reproductive rights and drugs and all these things that is making us a kind of pariah in the first world. I mean, we represent values which are incomprehensible to educated Europeans. 
One thing that occurs to me that I'm sure Rupert would have enthusiasm for because it involves his grassroots science thing, this question of does it make you lazy, does it give you energy, does it destroy your memory, does it enhance your memory? Mm, Because I've smoked so many years, so many different kinds of dope, uh, of cannabis, I've... Tend, I've come to hold pretty strong opinions about its various forms. And I think that, number one, charas is a debilitating drug. It has opium in it, it has detura in it, and it has various additives and binders that are not good. Uh, marijuana, which is how most Americans smoke their uh, cannabis involves the incineration of too much inert vegetable material so that you are getting pesticide residues, carbon monoxide, tars, all of these things are complicating the question of what does cannabis do. To my mind, the true test of whether or not cannabis is what the pharmacological effects of cannabis are, we should almost restrict our discussion to high-grade Lebanese hashish, which is truly nothing but the compressed resin of the female cannabis plant. And that's the classical uh, hashish of the Arab, and that's what I prefer and feel almost to be a different drug from both uh, Mexican marijuana and Pakistani or Indian hashish. Those things do carry uh, uh, detrimental uh, qualities that are not present in the pure, for instance, three lion or so-called red Lebanese hashish. That's the hashish that we want. That's the cannabis product that I would feel is the one that everyone should smoke before they judge or form a strong opinion about what cannabis can do. In spite of the increasingly repressive atmosphere in the United States, I imagine that marijuana smoking is still on the increase. I mean, it's very widely used, at at least uh, secretly. They claim not, but... There's a decrease? Slow, slight. Tonnage? Yeah, they claim so. Mm. Still, it's sufficiently widespread that a certain amount of grassroots scientific experimentation could be going on if there was a way to share the results of the experiments. Yes, this is something that grassroots, no pun intended, grassroots science could uh, tell us is the relative benignity of various forms of uh, of hashish or of cannabis. Indeed, yes. I mean, this would be a fairly easy project to carry out. I mean, assuming people had access to supplies of which they could compare. Mm-hmm. There's not the labs available. I don't know if they still are on the streets in Berkeley or San Francisco, for example. You could take your specimen of hashish and find out if it was opiated or not. Yes, that is a simple test, but questions about TARs, pesticide residues, carbon monoxide uh, output, various methods of smoking. You'd have to have a revival of kitchen chemistry, as it were. Right. 
but um, I think that uh, pure the pure resin of the cannabis plant is uh, you would be hard pressed to design a drug uh, with as many uh, laudable qualities as that one. Hmm. So then, perhaps we should consider what would happen if the trend that's happening in Europe, anyway, continues. If cannabis is yes. actually legalized, which is, as I say, it's already de facto legalized in parts of Germany, Switzerland, Italy, even to an extent in Britain. Um, so, what would happen? I mean, it's not a prospect I actually ever relished because um, I then imagine you know Philip Morris and, yes. and you know Anglo-American Tobacco Corporation moving into this area mm -hmm. and you know there's no doubt the restrictions on their commercials but um, the idea that this could then be a mass marketed product large scale international corporations would be in on it BCCI <coughs> um, well the, uh, the main high street banks and, and, and so on would then be financing these deals rather than uh, they'd take over the role of BCCI quite legally. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that I particularly uh, relish that. And the other issue which we haven't talked about, which is no doubt of some concern to you, Terence, is you know, at what age children might be permitted or encouraged to experiment with cannabis. And, would we want this to be going on in, in, in the gazebo here in Essendon, in nursery schools, you know, junior high school? Um, you know, if it's legalized and much more readily available, the same questions would arise as arise already, but more so because it would be more available. Well, I, I prefer decriminalization rather than legalization. I don't think we need to uh, simply say that any entrepreneur can invest in land, plant cannabis, patent a brand name, and begin to sell it on the open market. It would be much better simply to decriminalize it so that, and say something like, uh, each person could possess ten plants but that the transport and sale of it would be discouraged in some way so that it isn't... You see, we seem to have the attitude that something is either illegal or we can just go gung-ho with it and turn it into a meg the product of a multi-million dollar corporation. It would be much better to just say that the possession of small amounts of cannabis for personal use pose no threat to society and leave it at that. Well, how are you going to get your red Lebanese then? Well, you would uh, find a way, uh, just as one finds a way today. Easier if there was a government hash shop. Yes, uh, although I don't find it difficult to, to get red Lebanese. The only thing I would hope is that we might get a price break if it were decriminalized. It's currently being sold because it's an illegal commodity. It's being sold at an uh, enormous market for what it costs to produce it. And this might be it's something... It's a very expensive business. Well, why... why we have legal alcohol and some of the other things. Why not simply legal? So there can be shops, there can be huge industries, and there can be 
uh, gourmet growers using special methods and... Like wine, you mean? Like wine. Well, but then you have these problems, which Rupert is pointing out, that once more it's handed over to Madison Avenue to be turned into something where they can't simply say it's available to those who want it. People living in downtown New York City are not going to be able to grow eight or ten plants themselves. I was recently in downtown New York City and I examined a pot garden that would have been the envy of any resident of Humboldt County. Real estate is expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Spare bedroom with row bulbs is expensive and that's all right. But I think why not legalization? What are the problems? Well, probably this would come. And then it would be, as far as the question of children, it would be available, you know, it would be restricted to people below age 18 or something. Right. No, I think ultimately what we're going to have to do is legalize all drugs. Now, a hidden aspect of this is that uh, governments make enormous profits out of the fact that these drugs are illegal. A a harmless drug like cannabis, the interdiction, eradication, and the mafias which move it are all spun into government policy. I mean, governments have always been and continue to this day to be the major purveyors of drugs worldwide. So really, another factor mitigating the drive to legalize cannabis is where then would the CIA uh, obtain, it would eat into its ability to finance the various uh, rebel armies, front organizations. Yes, but what other way? I mean, for instance, when the mullahs took over in Iran, and gained control of the Iranian opium trade, the CIA turned to cocaine and brought on the crack epidemic of the 1980s. So governments will turn to... Would the government then create new synthetic drugs like ICE and then peddle them to the public? Without doubt. Well, this is just something to realize that governments, you see, wrap themselves in a mantle of righteousness and tell us just say no. But in fact, governments are making millions off the illicit, billions off the illicit drug trade. The entire Mujahideen resistance to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan was financed with the connivance of the CIA. Hashish was being unloaded on the docks of San Francisco in broad daylight by the metric ton at the height of the Afghan war. We've never been able to get Afghani hash of such quality as we were able to get during the period when the CIA was keen that we buy it so that they could finance the armed resistance to the Soviet occupation. And the day the Russians left, the hashish market in Northern California collapsed catastrophically and has never been able to build itself back to previous uh, levels. Well, Jones has said more it's organized, the easier it is to steal. See, the more substances are controlled, the more shadow space there is for shadow governments, uh, CIAs, mafias, and so on, 
to operate in the dark. So it's better to let go on all these fronts. And it's happening in Europe, uh, especially, I think, uh, it's much more significant that the decriminalization of, of, of heroin. There in the same parks in Switzerland, you see people sharing needles and so on. I think that's a very courageous experiment, and we'll get to see the results, and eventually, perhaps, it will spread to the United States. But, but you wouldn't suggest that we make heroin so legal that uh, you can flip open Time magazine to a color ad that says, what's missing in your life? Heroin, the drug of choice of the chic young set. This is not what we want. Uh, that would yeah. perhaps not be worse than what we've got now. I think that I, I feel as badly about tobacco as I do of many of these other things. I mean, personally, I had a very negative experience with uh, free-based cocaine. I found this material to be um, very surprisingly addictive. You know, the tiniest experiment leaves you a total addict. So, in my personal view, this stuff is extremely evil. Nevertheless, I don't think that... Uh, Restricting it by law is an effective strategy to prevent people from getting addicted. I think that crack is similar, I'm not sure. It's uh, extremely toxic material in society, but simply making it illegal just uh, creates this huge uh, shadow trade where it's out of control and people have to experiment here to find out what it is. And so the ad uh, in Time magazine would without doubt say this material is harmful to your health. The Surgeon General has found that shooting heroin is harmful to your health. It's to be very addicting after a single experience. And, and so on. The information would be circulated, the shadow would be eliminated, the secret would be eliminated. And I don't think that that necessarily means that a lot more people would be addicted. I think probably fewer. Well, the drug issue brings up the question of whether societies should organize themselves along the assumption that citizens are adults or children. And if you view citizens as children, well, then you have to keep various things out of their hands. If you believe citizens are adults, then you have to believe that certain checks and balances will keep any negative practice from simply sweeping through society and destroying it. I believe that. I believe that if heroin were legalized, a very small number of people would destroy themselves with it, and that's their business, and society can absorb the cost of their slow suicide in the same way that we absorb the cost of the slow suicide that people undergo with tobacco and alcohol. See, here are some more questions for grassroots science. Yes, well, in this drug area, grassroots science could do amazing things. It's just that the questions are never asked by big science because it really doesn't want the answers to some of these questions. To my mind, the Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness Clause of the United States Bill of Rights, if it means anything, it must mean the right to experiment with psychoactive drugs as you personally see fit. What does Pursuit of Happiness mean otherwise? <clears throat> Nevertheless, there is there are these enormous and growing problems of cocaine and uh, heroin abuse. 
are problems that no one seems to have an answer to, and which seems to be far worse than problems in the past. Well, I think it's a red herring. I think that if governments would stop dealing these drugs, these dis problems would disappear. I mean, the entire... I think night here, the mafia and the, the general Noriegos and the Medellin cartels of this world, I think it'd carry on perfectly well without the help of the CIA. Yes. I think if the CIA told them that they would be highly at risk if they disobeyed orders and that a directive had just come down from the uh, top that this was no longer going to be tolerated. I mean, the, much of the American cocaine comes in on Air Force planes. If you simply deny them the use of the American Air Force, it would pose a major problem to them in moving not their... not a suitable one. They've got other methods, boats, trucks across the Mexican border, all sorts of things. Well, you're not, going to, you're not going to wipe it out, but you, can, you don't have to grease the slides for it. This is what the CIA is doing. But I think the experiments going on now with the decriminalization of heroin, which is similar to uh, crack cocaine, I think, in its uh, addictive power, they are very encouraging that um, method other than legal restriction could be successful in dealing with the crack problem. Well, for instance, take uh, the tropanes. I mean, these are powerful mind-altering drugs, cause visions, so forth and so on. Uh, the entire Western United States is uh, a, a range for the Jimson weed plant, and it poses no social problems whatsoever to anyone. And it's as powerful as any drug which exists. And no, it just is not a problem. So it's something about focus and glamour, glamorization of habits. Uh, there are a number of examples like this uh, where, well, opium poppies, for example. The garden here at Esalen has a wonderful stand of opium poppies. This is not doing anybody any harm, and I don't see uh, people availing themselves of the raw opium which is being shed copiously just three steps off the path as you walk to the dining room. Is actually the legal restraint that raises the price that creates this um, economic attraction for the illegal substances. So the legal restraints actually create the opposite opposite effect than they're designed for. Yes, hemp was a major crop in this country up until the 1930s, and it was not discontinued because of the drug uh, potential, but because it uh, posed problems for um, those corporate entities which had huge holdings in forest timber that they planned to turn into paper, and the DuPont Chemical Corporation, and Standard Oil, which wanted lubricants and uh, high petrol distillates to come from petroleum rather than from a biological source. So it's, it's simply the glamorization and restriction of these things which creates artificial markets. I mean, airplane glue is an excellent example here. Airplane glue costs a buck twenty-nine a tube. Powerful drug, hallucinogenic drug, enhances sex, 
great drug. Only mad people uh, avail themselves of airplane glue. If you were to drop the price of crack cocaine to a buck twenty-nine a gram, you wouldn't see people driving around in their Maseratis with crack cocaine crumbs in their, I mean, with airplane glue in their beards. No, it would it would be viewed as so déclassé that no respectable person would get near it. Well, now that we've got the legalization of cannabis and probably other things and the resurrection of the hemp industry worldwide, how can we bring this to a conclusion? Well, I think you just did, Ralph. There you have it. Part of the pursuit of human freedom, part of citizenship and responsible adulthood and responsible government means uh, live and let live. This is a philosophy of which we hear far too little. Somebody is always trying to mess with somebody else's life, their sex life, their drug habits, their uh, political stances, so forth and so Long on. Long live orphism. Hear, hear. Hear. Boom, Shiva, boom, Shankar. Okay, gang. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Okay, gang. Well, uh, what did you think about that one? I really enjoyed it myself, uh, even though a, a lot has changed in the world since that recording was made. For one thing, uh, there was only talk about smoking cannabis, most likely because in 1991, vaporizer technology was still a little primitive, at least uh, when compared to the volcano, which is about as fine a piece of kit, as my friends in the UK say, as fine a piece of kit as you can get. Another thing that uh, came to mind when I was listening to this trilogue just now was that you can now find a wide range of information about cannabis from places like ASA, Americans for Safe Access, which uh, you can find at www.safeaccessnow, all one word, safeaccessnow.org. I've seen some of the uh, pamphlets that they have written, uh, like Cannabis and Cancer, Cannabis and Aging, etc., and I highly recommend them as sources of information that you can pass on to friends, relatives, and neighbors who are uh, still ignorant about the vast amount of medical benefits available from the cannabis plant. In the talk we just now listened to, uh, Terence mentions the brilliant uh, cannabis-fueled salons that he participated in during his Berkeley years in the 60s. And that uh, brought to mind some late-night conversations that I've had with friends over the years. Not that my friends and I were in the same intellectual league as our three merry trialoggers. We uh, nonetheless made a point every now and then that sparked other thoughts and spurred us on to greater heights. And my guess is that uh, you've been involved in similar groups, which uh, finally leads me to the point I'd like to make, and uh, that is that you might want to think about hosting and recording your own dialogues, trialogues, and uh, other group conversations just to see where they lead. Who knows, uh, maybe one of our fellow saloners will discover the next great bard among us. In any event, uh, even if you can only find one other person nearby that you can get together with and discuss some of the things we talk about here in the Psychedelic Salon, 
I think you'll find that uh, the time you spend in the company of other like-minded people will probably do more for your attitude than 10 years of therapy. It's really amazing when you think about it uh, how little discussion there is about psychedelics in our everyday conversation. Once you've experienced these sacred medicines a few times, I think you'll agree that the experience is by far the most profound experience you can imagine, and yet uh, we're afraid to discuss it in public. In fact, I was uh, a little surprised just now when I heard Ralph say that 10 years earlier he felt more free to reveal his personal psychedelic history to his students than he did at the time of the recording. So if you do the math, uh, it was easier to talk about drugs in 1981 than it is uh, today, or at least in 1991. In other words, uh, here in this great republic, this supposed baston of free speech, even university professors have to be careful about what they're saying about psychedelic medicines. Which means that, uh, ultimately, even with the vast resources now available on the Internet, there is uh, mainly widespread misunderstanding and ignorance about what I believe to be the most important physical materials that we know about. Which brings me to an interesting question that I received from Trey. Here's what he said. I fear that the psychedelic community is surrounded by the danger of becoming dogmatic in its thinking due to its isolation. Do you have any podcasts that involve a psychedelic thinker versus a non-psychedelic thinker? What I have in mind is the kind of debate that people such as Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins go through. Putting aside whether one agrees with their beliefs or not, they're at least willing to put them on the line against others. So again, do you have any podcasts that involve a psychedelic proponent versus a psychedelic opponent? Well, uh, Trey, that's uh, an interesting thought. But after thinking about it for a while, I've decided that a conversation like that might work on the evening news, but I'm not going to uh, spend the time on it myself here in the salon. And here's why. First of all, uh, I've never heard of an anti-psychedelic person who's actually used psychedelics in the past. So any opinions that they might have would, would have to be without much value since they would be basing their opinions on what others have told them, not on their own personal experience. The other thing that uh, bothers me about the idea is that it reminds me too much of why I've quit watching the television news. And that is their, their constant, and I think phony, attempt to uh, always present their view of a balanced picture. Yet one side may have 90% of the people in agreement, and uh, by giving the other side equal time, the audience comes away thinking uh, the world is equally divided on the topic when uh, that really isn't the case. Of course, uh, this opens me up to people saying that I must be afraid of the outcome if such a debate were held. But that simply isn't the case. Uh, for my part, I just don't have any time to listen to the rantings of these religious people who think that anything that gives one pleasure is to be avoided. Hey, uh, besides all of the great intellectual insights that can be gained from using these substances, they also provide a significant amount of pleasure. And uh, we all know that the powers that be don't want the minions to receive too much pleasure, particularly if they uh, aren't spending money and using oil in the process. So I'm a bit jaded about hosting a debate between a psychedelic intellectual and someone who is still groping in the dark. But I'll tell you uh, what may be more interesting and uh, actually spark a lively debate. And that is to raise the question as to whether psychedelics uh, should be available for the masses or if they should be held back for only the intellectual elite to use. 
Now, before you get too excited about such an exclusive way to treat these substances, I should remind you that uh, no less a psychedelic and intellectual luminary than Aldous Huxley talked about uh, restricting the use of psychoactive substances to select individuals. I'm not sure I agree with that, but uh, I think the uh, topic is something worth talking about. Now that I'm thinking about it, Trey, uh, maybe what we should do is uh, get several fully psychedelic people to take opposite sides on that question, uh, the question of whether psychedelics should be restricted to highly trained individuals or if they should be made freely available to anyone who wants to try them. Maybe some of our uh, fellow saloners will add to this discussion on our blog at psychedelicsalon.org or uh, on our forum at thegrillreport.com. But uh, thanks for raising the question, Trey, and I look forward to hearing any other thoughts some of uh, our other saloners might have about this as well. And before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License, which basically means you can use the content of this uh, podcast as you wish. And if you have any questions about... uh, that, you just click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.